Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Dr. Richard Harris. He graduated pharmacy school from the University of Texas at Austin, so go Horns. Graduated medical school from the University of Texas Health Center at Houston. Also has an MBA, founded Harris Medical Consultants, 40 Acres Fund, and is a chief medical officer at Nimbus Healthcare, as well as having his own podcast, Strive for Great Health. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dr. Harris. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Eric. It's uh, truly a pleasure to be with you today. Hey, the pleasure is actually mine with this one, and I, I truly mean that because as somebody like yourself who's got two doctor degrees, MD and a PharmD, I think it's pretty cool that you came out recently and supported a change.org petition to get pharmacists to prescribe uh, the antiviral medications that are coming out now for COVID-19. What kind of led you to thinking that this is a vital way of doing it, actually having pharmacists prescribe? You know, when I was in pharmacy school, I got the inkling that I wanted to be a physician, but I love what I was learning in pharmacy school. And that's why I stuck it out. People always ask me, why didn't you quit? And it's because it, it truly was a, a learning that I love. And when I got in medical school, it was funny. All my classmates hated me because <laughs> it was easy for me. I worked as a pharmacist at MD Anderson while in medical school. Nobody works in medical school, but I felt so strong because of my training. And then when I'd gotten a residency from day one, the attendings were like, you're the pharmacist? I was like, yeah. Okay, what do I need to do about this patient, that patient? What should I do in this situation? I was running teams as an intern. The upper <laughs> levels would just take off because of like, oh, we're with Richard this month? Awesome, he's got it. And they would just like leave early and I'd be the one doing the work of an upper level as a first year. And that's when I really realized the power that pharmacists hold and that pharmacists are criminally underutilized in the current system. You know, depending on where you look, we're about 130, 150,000 healthcare providers short in this country by 2030. Half of them are in primary care. 70% of internal medicine graduates go on to specialize. They don't go into primary care. So there's this huge gap in primary care. And as the population continues to grow and continues to age, I feel like I'm the only one shouting from the rooftops that there's a major catastrophe looming. And who better to fill that gap in the primary care space to be providers than pharmacists? And I've always told people I'm a pharmacist first, a physician second, and I will always advocate for the expansion of pharmacist privileges and, and prescriptive authority because it is something that is sorely needed in healthcare system. And you and I both know that there's data that backs us up, that patient outcomes are better when there is a collaboration between a physician and a pharmacist. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think that you're probably the first person I've ever heard who considers himself a pharmacist first and a physician second. I've heard people say the other way, or I've heard people say they're even, but you're the first person I've ever heard say that. And I kind of like that obviously because I'm a biased pharmacist, but also because it's just like the the lens and the scope you put on it and the way you phrase that. So when we're talking about pharmacists prescribing something like for COVID-19 or these antivirals, there's a lot of people who kind of like draw hesitancy. Like, how do we do that? Is it like you have to do a test there and then treat them? Is that a conflict of interest? In like an ideal world or like the world that you envision where pharmacists can prescribe these, what would that kind of look like? 
Yeah, I think that the pharmacy is a health hub. And you can kind of look at it the same like what an urgent care does, except much more cost effective. And you'd have the on-site testing, which most pharmacies already have at this point. Yeah. And then you look at things like POCT lab work. Uh, a lot of pharmacies are starting to get that in. POCT, you know, CBC or CMP or even POCT STD testing is now available. So now it's, okay, we don't really have to wait that long for the labs to come back. I can make decisions easily. And then it's developing a workflow. And there are several companies out there who are working on this, developing a workflow for pharmacists to do these things to make it simple and easy. And that's what I envision. You know, there's about 90 million urgent care visits a year in this country, about 130 million ER visits. 30% of those ER visits are inappropriate. They should go to urgent care. So we're talking about 120 million visits going to urgent care every year for things. And why can't that be at the pharmacy? Why can't I go get treated for a cough or a cold or a UTI at the pharmacy? And then if I have a simple hypertension or simple diabetes or simple elevated lipids, I can get labs measured at the pharmacy. I can get the pharmacist to adjust my medications, give me lifestyle recommendations, maybe supplements if that's something I'm interested in. And that way they don't have to wait two weeks, which is the average now to see their primary care. It's two weeks. That's probably gone up a little bit since COVID. So that's what I envision in the future of pharmacy is not so much a dispensary because let's face it, 10 years from now, that's going to be largely automated. Right. You know, a, a machine-based system will be more accurate and faster than a human in the dispensing function. That's just facts. So why not turn these pharmacies into community health hubs? Because that's, that's not what a physician's office is anymore. It, it's not a community health hub. It used to be. But it's not anymore. And I feel like there's a role there for pharmacies and pharmacists to take that up and be that community provider that really can help with multiple different areas of health. Yeah. And, you know, you hit a few things there I've mentioned before on the podcast, but you have put a very specific number on it. And that was that there was 130,000 healthcare providers short. And right now with pharmacy, with pharmacists and the profession of pharmacy, we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing Previous to the pandemic, we had a glut of pharmacists, and we have a lot of pharmacy schools, and we're seeing some change in dynamics with that. With but even like these community pharmacy pharmacists are stepping away from some of these big chains because they don't like what their roles become. But if we could get them actively engaged in doing things like this, that are like, I don't want to use the term basic urgent care, but those type of things, right, where someone comes in, they have a cough, and, and it's pretty simple. They have no major health history, or they need something like a COVID antiviral. You can just test them make sure like if it's positive or not, give them the appropriate medication or even like you referred to some STDs and things like that too. And then get them out the door without having to worry about infecting anyone else, driving up a $5,000, $10,000 ER bill or something crazy like that. And then keeping those critical need, not that pharmacies aren't, but those critical need urgent care services or emergency services open without risking all of their healthcare providers in there and all the expense of that too. So I think that that's really, really cool that you said 130,000 because I mean, pharmacists can take a chunk out of that. We probably won't do all of it. I'll be dead honest, but we can definitely take a chunk out of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the key points and one of the key barriers to this is the pharmacist's own minds. 
I hear pharmacists say all the time, well, I can't do that. You know, I haven't been trained to do that. And I say, yes, you have. I've went through your training and I aced medical school and aced residency because of the training that we received as pharmacists. So all you need is a subtle shift. And this is one of the things that I'm working with one of my clients on now when we develop these protocols and these CE for pharmacist prescriptive authority is how do we shift the mind of a pharmacist from a dispenser to a provider? Because it is a different way of thinking, but it doesn't mean that pharmacists don't have the training or lack the knowledge to do it. It's more of a mental barrier in a way of thinking than anything else. And that can always be changed. Yeah. You know, I've with the current work that I do, and I'm not going to talk bad about them anyway, but you know, it's one of those things that as we kind of advance the profession of pharmacy to become a safety net or to take on more because we're good at it. It's one of those things that people are just having a hard time comprehending, but the pharmacist gives them pills. I'm like, we do more than that, you know? And it's, it's just one of those things that is like the evolution of healthcare and is especially in the pandemic, I swear it's evolving every week in general, but you know, that's just what the nature of the pandemic itself. So when mm-hmm. one thing I hear a lot of is some of my friends who work in like community pharmacy or some of the chains. And when, when they saw a petition like this, or they thought that, you know, some of the pharmacy orgs are pushing to pharmacists to prescribe, they were like, Oh no, this is going to be another metric that shoved at me. What would your response be to that? The people who've got that mindset, that dispensary mindset when it comes to, to pharmacy or maybe are a little jaded from their past experiences? Yeah, I say, well, where are you going to be in five or 10 years? What's going to happen with your dispensing function as automation continues to increase? And what are you going to do then? And then I say, well, what did you go to pharmacy school for? You didn't go to pharmacy school to be a dispenser. No one goes to pharmacy school to be a dispenser. I didn't go to pharmacy school to be a dispenser. I went to pharmacy school to help patients with their medications and their a lifestyle and be accessible and, and compassionate, real, true patient care. That's why I went to pharmacy school. That's one of the things I, I try to get them to unlock is to remember why they did it in the first place. And then to show them that this change is inevitable. This dispensing role is going to go away. We've already seen it happen where we went to central dispensaries, you know, these big mega pharmacies that all they do is just dispense with a few pharmacists on staff and it's mostly machines and automated those exist right we all know that and i think that's going to be the norm going forward so then how do you continue to be a pharmacist and serve your community when the role that you're in has disappeared yeah and that's where we go to being a prescriber and being a clinician because that's the natural evolution of pharmacy you know, it's funny you say that because you said like, you know, these huge central fill pharmacies that just fill thousands upon thousands of medications. And like you said, it's automated away to some extent. One thing that I think the pharmacy profession is guilty of with this, and I would love to hear your response since you play in both fields. We always brag about our numbers when it's a community pharmacy. Like you hear a pharmacist say, I'm the busiest pharmacy and whatever. We do a thousand scripts a day. We, you know, they're always talking like script count volume, like these like measurable, like one plus one equals two type of things. But when you hear other providers brag and having some friends who worked in like orthopedics as surgeons, they'll brag about, oh, you know, I worked on this like 13 hour case, but I fixed this kid's back and he was able to walk again. And like they brag about the care they provide. Is that one of the major differences you see with the professions is like the way they talk about themselves? 
Yeah, you brought up a really great point, and that's the mindset of a dispenser versus the mindset of a clinician. Because I, I think about these outcomes. I think about the people I've saved or the people I've impacted or whenever a patient sends me a note about how I've, I've really changed the trajectory of their life, having the podcast, the same thing. I get messages from people all over the world, how the podcast has helped them. And, and that's the essence of being a clinician. And we alluded to this earlier, it, it's just a mindset shift. And that's what we need as pharmacists to step into this role that's right there for the taking. And you know, MPs have done this, PAs have done this. It's not so far-fetched for pharmacists to step in into that role as well. And there's plenty of pie to go around. The problem in America is that there's not uh, enough sick people, right? That's not the problem. <laughs> we have plenty of sick people. There's plenty of pie to go around for clinicians. And it could be in whatever area you want to be in. If you want to be a diabetes pharmacist, be a diabetes pharmacist or a lipid pharmacist. Or if you just want to specialize in hypertension and managing that, there's plenty of those patients to go around. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting you say that because you hear so many people are always worried about stepping on toes or, you know, like that's my turf, whatever it is. Right. But I guess maybe it's more like the libertarian side of me that thinks like, well, open it up and let's see what the outcomes are. You don't know if you don't try. Now there's a fine line to walk of everyone's got to know their scope, which I think is very key here. There's no way I'm walking into a surgery center saying I'm a pharmacist. Let me give me a scalpel. But but I think that that's a key, key thing here and kind of bringing it back to what you said, too is when you talk about like the way that you're bragging or like your colleagues about things you've done, like the care you provided, whatever, a lot of it goes to how we get paid. Pharmacists generally don't get paid for the care we actually provide a lot of ways. Like how many times do we offer like consultation for free or do you have any questions? Sure. Let me talk to you for five minutes about or 20 minutes about this thing. And we don't always get paid for that. Whereas the other providers do. And so I think that that's a, a why we focus on those things is because that's where the revenue is for us. Does that make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a complete failure in the insurance system. I mean, don't get me started on insurance to begin with <laughs> Same. And, and how terrible insurance actually is. But the, even physicians, for a large extent, don't bill for their time because it's not as easy to deal with the insurance company if you're billing for time as billing for what you did, right? DRGs and and ICD tens and and all of that. But what do patients actually want? Yeah. They want their physician or their provider or their MP or whoever to talk to them and explain things to them. That's why they're paying for insurance because they want to know if I have questions, I can go, I can talk to somebody, they're gonna answer my questions, they're gonna give me reassurance. That's mostly what we do as, as providers is provide people with reassurance and, and a, a sense of safety and a sense of calm. That's what we're actually in the business of. If you want to look at it from a, you know, put on my MBA hat and what we're actually selling, that's what we're actually selling. So we need some changes in the way insurance works where you do get reimbursed for your time. And if you don't want to do insurance, then do a cash base. There's a surprising amount of people who are willing to pay for additional services if you actually provide them a great service with cash yeah and you know i think that we've seen a huge influx of that with 
especially in the pandemic, mental health services, right? I mean, you can't, I don't have them on my podcast, but a lot of other podcasts have advertisements for like better health and things like that, like online, like counseling services. And a lot of people are just paying for that out of their pocket. And it goes exactly to what you said of people are willing to throw money at this to be reinsured, to help have some you know, stability to kind of talk things through a little bit. Now, obviously mental health is different than physical health. We, to, they can, they're tied together, but you get what I'm saying here. And they're paying for exactly what you said in cash in so many cases. So as a next step, when, from we're talking, kind of going back to the original premise here of pharmacists prescribing or being providers for care for things like this, do you see that this is like a, uh, this COVID prescribing could be a step to things like Tamiflu or other test and treats that would help pharmacists alleviate some of that 130,000 provider shortage that's coming in the near future, but also getting people timely access to care, especially when it comes to things like Tamiflu where time matters. Absolutely. I think that's critical because again, if you call your primary care saying, Hey, I think I've got a a flu or I've got a UTI or symptoms going on. They say, okay, we'll see you in two weeks. And so that's not okay. If, If that's you, that's not okay. Well, what, what if you could go to your local pharmacy, get the test for flu or get a UA done and your pharmacist says, oh, yeah, you do have a UTI. It looks uncomplicated based upon your symptoms, right? You already pre-filled out a questionnaire using technology that your pharmacy is in a registry or something like that. You fill out the information. It goes to your pharmacist. Your pharmacist quickly reviews it and then uh, prescribes the appropriate medication or orders the appropriate test. You show up, you get the test. It's positive, you get the treatment and you go on your way. And that just saved you an ER visit, an urgent care visit, and then waiting in misery and agony for your primary care professional to be available. So I think that's an ideal place to start with this is the kind of acute care scenarios because that that is something where people, the populace sees the value in that. Uh, And people will always pay for convenience. If I don't have to wait for something that I feel is urgent, people will pay for that. Yep. And I think that's a good place to start. And I think we'll see that parlayed into the chronic care maintenance. Because honestly, a pharmacist is much better suited to titrate your medications after a diagnosis than a physician. Much better suited. They have much more knowledge of the medication, what the current trends in the medication are, which medication the class is best, because they're not all just me too's. We know that as pharmacists. Yeah. There's, there's differences in certain pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic parameters that might make one medication in the class better than another for certain people. And then you can even go into pharmacogenetics, right? Which is something that's blowing up. And I think that's a very useful service. So there's lots of things that we will see in the pharmacy of the future, that health hub of the future. But I think you're right. I think it starts with test and treat and acute care. And as people buy into that, then these organizations say, well, what else can the pharmacy do? Yeah, I think that's huge. And especially when you talk about like the pharmacogenetics, uh, pharmacogenomics, whatever the preferred language is for it these days, that's huge because now we're talking about like SIP enzymes and interactions and knowledge that a lot of pharmacists can pretty much rattle off pretty quick. And if not, they can figure it out exactly where to look very quickly to find that answer too. And then, you know, when it comes to stuff, especially like, as I referred to before, like a lot of these psych medications that we know go through different 
metabolism pathways and things like that. They're not exactly me twos, even if they're in the same class, there's different renal dosing, stuff like that. That's stuff that we can just kind of fly off with real quick and know how to adjust it and know if it's appropriate or not. And not saying that a well-trained physician can't, but that's just another thing that if we can do it right there, we can save that time, save that week, two week, longer <laughs> visit to connect people to care and help them make a healthcare decision that is appropriate, that will help them pretty much right there or in a pretty short turnaround time, as opposed to having to go, like you said, with the, into the backlog of patients that are lined up to see physicians or NPs in some cases. So I think that's awesome. All right. Well, I can't let you off the podcast without asking you two questions I ask everybody. And again, I think your role is cool. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how you uh, answer these. If you could change one thing about pharmacy that is not a law, but something about like the profession itself, what would it be and why? That's a great question. If I could change one thing, I think it would be pharmacists' confidence in themselves. And the reason I say that is because I see a lot of pharmacists who don't think about themselves as providers and don't think about themselves as really as doctors. And I see some pharmacists that do, that wear that mantle proudly. And I want all pharmacists to wear that mantle proudly because I'll be frank and honest. People ask me this question all the time. Which one was harder, medical school or pharmacy school? Pharmacy school was harder. Hmm. That's an interesting take. And it's funny you say that because several people I know who've done pharmacy school that then go on to do med school have said that as well. So I think that's interesting because now it's turning into a trend that I'm seeing. And I, I completely agree with you. I've seen a lot of pharmacists that struggle with that. They almost feel like they're an imposter when they use the term doctor. And I'm like, no, you earned it. Like I would call an engineer a doctor in, if they had a doctorate in engineering. Like you earned the title. We can call you that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. If you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, because okay, there's some quirky state laws out there, what would it be and why? You would have basically what I see is in the future when I'm going in to recertify my internal medicine boards, if I have a pharmacist in there who is wanting to do primary care, that's it, is that we all would get certified under the same standard as prescribers to take care of patients in a uniform and, and standard way. I, I really would want to see that where we are truly colleagues taking care of patients as we know best. Can you explain that process? Because most listeners are pharmacists, and I don't know if they fully understand what you're referring to, but I think it's a valid point. Oh, yes. So for my medical license, I have to recertify by taking the medical boards every 10 years. There's a shorter version you can take. I think it's every two years, something like that, that in order to keep our license active. So there is a little bit more work that goes into it than pharmacy license. My pharmacy license, by the way, is still active. And it's really actually convenient that I can use my medical CE to keep my pharmacy license active. That just makes it really great. But that's what I'm talking about is, is recertifying for your, your boards. Yeah, so most pharmacists obviously would know this, but you just you go do your CE, you put them into the database, and then as long as you hit the – quotas for your state, thumbs up, you're good to go. And with medical, there's actually like <laughs> retesting, but it's obviously appropriate mm. because so much of the guidelines change, but they change for medicine and they change for pharmacy. So it's not like we're dealing with, you know, apples and oranges here. It's really the same thing with just the guidelines get updated every so often. 
Right. As any type of clinician, you should be a lifelong learner anyway. And I know that we don't always get the time to do so, but I try to make time to stay up with what's going on in pharmacy, what's going on in medicine and new trends, just so I can serve the people around me the best I possibly can. Actually, if I can go back and change one thing, I would say that we have protected education time, not just CME time, but actually protected education time to read clinical studies and learn what's there on the cutting edge. Yeah, that would be so huge, especially in times like COVID, where it seems like every week there's something changing, whether it's ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or actually like antivirals coming out, as well as vaccines changing with their dosing, their storage, their handling, all that stuff. So I think that's I think that's actually interesting. I'll, I'll let it go. I'll give you two since you got two doctorate degrees. You can change two things. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast, Dr. Dr. Harris. You've been awesome. I always like hearing people like you who wear two hats in the medical field because I feel like it gives you a better look at the whole overall healthcare system. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope this is valuable to your listeners and to the pharmacists out there. Hey, you guys are clinicians too. And again, his podcast is Strive for Great Health. Where else can people find you if they want to kind of like tag along to some of the things you're doing? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn, and that's just my name, or you can see Dr. Harris MD. The other place I'm active on is Instagram, and it's the same thing, Dr. Harris MD. Gotcha. I, I don't have a huge Instagram following. I'm more on Facebook and Twitter, but I am pretty active on LinkedIn too. So I'll make sure to tag you on all of those and put it all in the show notes. So people can find you because again, I just love people who have roles like this and always respect your opinion. So thanks again for coming on the podcast and listeners. Thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.